Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of The Art of Crime. As always, I'm your host, Gavin Whitehead. Today, we are joined by Austin Harvey, a staff writer for the History Uncovered podcast. History Uncovered explores the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past. Episodes come out every single Wednesday, and the show covers a massive variety of subjects, from the sinking of the Titanic to the biography of the real-life Pocahontas. So, Austin, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me here. What we're going to do is play a full-length episode of the History Uncovered podcast. It's about 15 minutes long, and it deals with the mysterious disappearance of indigenous art collector Michael Rockefeller in 1961. After that clip plays, I'm going to have a quick chat with Austin where we'll talk about the process of making this episode, and Austin will expand on a few points of interest. So I hope you enjoy, and if you like what you hear, make sure to follow History Uncovered wherever you listen to podcasts. The Rockefeller name has a long and storied history in American business and politics. From Standard Oil co-founder John D. Rockefeller, widely considered the wealthiest person of all time, to his grandson Nelson Rockefeller, who served as both governor of New York from 1959 to 1973 and vice president to Gerald Ford from 1974 to 1977. But among the long line of Rockefellers, there is one whose story is marked by tragedy, mystery, and grisly theories about his untimely death. Michael Clark Rockefeller was Nelson Rockefeller's youngest son, a quiet and artistic young man who wanted more out of life than four walls in an office building. So after graduating from Harvard in 1960, Michael Rockefeller decided to make his mark on the world not as another businessman or politician as many a Rockefeller had done before him, but instead as a collector of what was then called primitive art, made in some of the world's most remote locations. But a year later, on a trip to Dutch New Guinea, the small boat transporting Rockefeller and his companion René Wassing capsized roughly 14 miles from the shore. Rockefeller felt he could make it to land and swam off into the water, never to be seen again. What followed was a media whirlwind, as the son of New York's governor and the scion of America's most famous millionaire family remained missing despite an enormous search effort. And not only was Rockefeller never found, but when the case was later reopened, some concluded that he did, in fact, make it to shore where he was killed and cannibalized. You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting, where we explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past. I'm All That's Interesting staff writer Austin Harvey, and today we're looking into the mysterious disappearance of Michael Rockefeller and the chilling theories that surround it. In the primeval jungles of southwest New Guinea, all the modern resources of the civilized world are employed in the search for the explorer son of New York's Governor Nelson Rockefeller. An expedition seeking primitive art brought 23-year-old Michael Rockefeller into the remote region where the water is infested with sharks and crocodiles. In 1954, Nelson Rockefeller, at the time working as the special assistant to the President for Foreign Affairs, founded the Museum of Primitive Art a now-defunct museum that used a now-defunct term to describe the artworks of various indigenous peoples around the world. He supplied the museum with his own collection of tribal art, and its doors opened to the public in 1957, when Rockefeller's youngest son, Michael, was a student at Harvard. By the end of the decade, Nelson Rockefeller was the governor of New York, and Michael's graduation day was fast approaching. Of course, his father expected him to continue the Rockefeller tradition and help manage the family's business empire, But Michael found that what had brought him the most joy were his trips abroad. He had lived for months in Japan and later in Venezuela, and studied history and economics, graduating cum laude from Harvard. 
Ultimately, his wanderlust and curiosity and his father's penchant for non-Western artwork opened up a promising path for him. Working with a team from Harvard's Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology, Michael Rockefeller would embark on an expedition to study the Dani tribe of Dutch New Guinea. Rockefeller's primary responsibility on this expedition was to record sound for the documentary Dead Birds, directed by Harvard anthropologist Robert Gardner. The film was highly acclaimed and used a non-linear narrative style to examine death through the battles and myths of the Dugum Dani people in the Balium Valley of modern-day Papua New Guinea. It was later even added to the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress. Unfortunately, Michael Rockefeller would never live to see the film's release in 1963. While working on the film, however, Rockefeller and a friend from the expedition broke from the main group for a time to study a southern tribe known as the Ozma. The Ozma tribe had long lived in isolation, and despite the presence of Dutch colonial missionaries on the island, they had never seen a white man. The Ozma also held the belief that spirits inhabited the land beyond their island, and when white people suddenly arrived on the island from across the sea, the Ozma believed them to be supernatural beings. This didn't mean they held their visitors in high regard, however. They tolerated being filmed, but they refused to sell Rockefeller or other members of the expedition any of their cultural artifacts. The Rockefeller felt that he had finally found what he was looking for, a group of people whose values existed in stark contrast to those of Western society. If he could bring home some of their artifacts, he could exhibit them in his father's museum and inform the Western world of this wild and remote country. The Osmond people were deeply spiritual and revered things like wood as sacred believing that they themselves arose out of it. As a result, they were considered to be the best woodcarvers of the Stone Age, and their wooden works have been featured in museums across the world. But wood was not the only thing the Osmot held in high regard. And the other subject of their worship was far more macabre. Wars between tribes were common, meaning death was equally common. But for the Osmot, death was just the beginning. Osmot warriors often took the heads of their fallen enemies and consumed their flesh. They emptied out the skulls and sealed the eye sockets and nasal openings to prevent evil spirits from entering or exiting the body, then displayed the decorated skulls in their homes. Sometimes they even rested their heads on their skulls and used them as pillows. In one letter home, Michael Rockefeller wrote, The Osmot is like a huge puzzle with the variations in ceremony and art style forming the pieces. My trips are enabling me to comprehend, if only by a superficial rudimentary manner, the nature of this puzzle. His interest peaked, Rockefeller and the expedition returned home, and plans for a second trip began to take shape. Almost immediately after returning, Michael Rockefeller laid out his goals for a second expedition. He corresponded with Adrian Gerbrens, the deputy director of the Dutch National Museum of Ethnology who had been conducting fieldwork in Osmot, and had assigned to him a government anthropologist named René Wassing from the Dutch New Guinea Department of Native Affairs. Rockefeller was sure that his exhibition of Osmot art was going to be the greatest the world had ever seen. So in October 1961, Rockefeller and Wassing returned to Osmot and talked a Dutch patrol officer into selling them his small handmade boat. Rockefeller carried numerous goods for bartering, including steel axes, fishing tools, cloth, and tobacco. 
Over the course of three weeks, the duo visited 13 villages and managed to put together a sizable collection of Azamat works, including bamboo horns, spears, paddles, shields, drums, and bowls. But what fascinated Rockefeller the most was the traditional beach pole, an intricately carved wooden pillar used in Azamat rituals and religious ceremonies that he described as inviolate for the encroachment of Western commercialism upon Azamat art. On November 18th, Rockefeller and Wassing set off once again along the coast of the Arafura Sea, intending to meet up with a priest named Cornelius von Kessel, the sole person who knew the wild regions of southern Azmat well. On the boat with them were two Azmat teenagers who had been serving as guides, but while crossing the Bedsch River, a sudden squall caused the gentle waters to form violent cross currents, and the waves suddenly capsized their small boat. The Azmat teenagers dove into the water and easily swam to shore, reaching the town of Agates later that evening to find help. The Dutch began assembling search teams, but Rockefeller and Wassing were forced to spend the night clinging to the overturned boat. The next morning, Rockefeller reportedly told Wassing that he felt he could make it to shore, roughly 14 miles away. He plunged himself into the water, swam off, and was never seen again. Later that day, Wassing was seen from the air, and she was rescued the next morning. An enormous search for Michael Rockefeller then got underway. Ships, airplanes, and helicopters scoured the region, but there was no sign of him. Nine days later, the Dutch interior minister declared there is no longer any hope of finding Michael Rockefeller alive. Two weeks later, the search was officially caught off and Michael Rockefeller's cause of death was listed as drowning. And though there was much media speculation regarding the young Rockefeller's death at the time, the theories were baseless, and it wouldn't be for another 50 years that a truly plausible theory would emerge. In 2014, National Geographic reporter Carl Hoffman released a book titled Savage Harvest, a tale of cannibals, colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's tragic quest for primitive art. A book that claimed the evidence from the inquiries of Dutch officials proved that Michael Rockefeller had, in fact, been killed and eaten by the Osmot. According to records and accounts compiled by Hoffman, a group of 50 men from the village of Otsjanep had been journeying home from the government post in Piramapun and paused at the mouth of the Iota River for a smoke as they waited for the tides to turn. Then they saw something in the water. At first, they thought it was a crocodile, but upon closer inspection, they saw that it was a Tuan, a white man. The man waved at them. One of the Osmot turned to the others and said in their language, People of Osjanap, you're always talking about headhunting Tuans. Well, here's your chance. There was a debate among the group, some in favor of killing the white man, others against it. In the end, the former group won. The story was relayed to Hoffman by a Dutch Catholic priest named Hubertus von Pey, who had spent years in Osmot and knew the people and their language well. Von Pey had been told the story by four Osmot men who visited him in a missionary's house. When he pressed them for more details, what the man looked like, what clothes he wore, what happened to his body, it became clear to him who they were describing. Von Pey wrote a note to his superiors. Without having the intention of doing so, I stumbled across information, and I feel compelled to report this. Michael Rockefeller has been picked up and killed by Otschanep. The villages of Joe, Bahar, and Omadasep are all clearly aware of it. Cornelius von Kessel, the priest who Rockefeller had planned a rendezvous with, heard similar whisperings among the tribes. A year later, a police officer sent to investigate the crime reached the same conclusion, and produced a skull the Osmot claimed belonged to Michael Rockefeller. But the Rockefellers were never told of this evidence. Instead, these reports remained hidden away for years as the Dutch struggled to maintain control of the island, 
having lost half of it to the new state of Indonesia by 1962. Meanwhile, the world remained in the dark about Michael Rockefeller's fate. For half a century, no one heard about how his skull had allegedly been cut open and his brains eaten, how his bones were turned into daggers and fishing spears, or how the tribesmen drained his blood and coated themselves in it while performing ritual dances and sex acts. The Osman of Otsjanup killed Rockefeller supposedly in response to an incident in 1957, when a group of Dutch colonials opened fire on a group of men from Otsjanup after a violent skirmish between that village and Omadisep. By killing Rockefeller, a member of the tribe of the white man, the Otsjanup believed they were claiming power that had been stolen from them when their own members were killed. Having learned of Rockefeller's fate, Hoffman prepared to return to the United States. On one of his last days in Osmot, he saw one tribesman miming a story to another. It involved spearing someone, shooting an arrow, and chopping off a head. The story reached its conclusion before Hoffman could capture it on film. He did, however, manage to record the epilogue. Don't you tell this story to any other man or any other village, because this story is only for us. Don't speak. Don't speak and tell the story. I hope you remember it, and you must keep this for us. I hope, I hope this is for you and you only. Don't talk to anyone forever, to other people or another village. If people question you, don't answer. Don't talk to them because this story is only for you. If you tell it to them, you'll die. I am afraid you will die. You'll be dead. Your people will be dead if you tell this story. You keep this story in your house to yourself, I hope, forever. Forever. Hoffman believes the tail end of the story he caught was a recounting of Michael Rockefeller's death. That Rockefeller had been killed by the Osmot as a proxy for the white men who killed their fellow tribesmen. Given how much time has passed since Rockefeller's disappearance, though, it's impossible to know if Hoffman's theory is correct. Still, it is the theory that makes the most sense. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about a splendid podcast that anyone who loves art and history should listen to. Fittingly enough, it's called Art of History, and it's hosted by Amanda Matta, an art historian and museum educator who really knows her stuff. I've listened to Art of History for a while now, and I love it. Part of what makes this show so excellent is that Amanda takes you deep into whatever it is she's talking about. Each episode is structured around a single work of art, a painting, a sculpture, and sometimes a building, and Amanda effortlessly fills 50 to 60 informative minutes about that artwork, exploring what it reveals about the past as well as why it resonates with the present. One of my favorite episodes is called The Baroque Bearded Lady, Magdalena Ventura. It revolves around a portrait of Magdalena Ventura, 
a woman who attained celebrity in early 17th century Italy as a natural wonder for her bushy beard. While discussing this portrait, Amanda tells you both about Ventura's incredible life as well as that of the picture's painter, Giuseppe de Ribera. Art of history covers work from a wide array of time periods, so there's tons to learn. I've heard Amanda talk about depictions of Christine de Pisan, the first medieval European woman to make her living as a writer, a controversial 18th century portrait of Queen Charlotte, as well as the life and work of abstract expressionist Mark Rothko. So if you're into art and history, you should get into Art of History. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. So, wow, pretty gruesome story there, but also a fascinating story. Austin, how did you find out about Michael Rockefeller and why did his story seem like a good fit for the History Uncovered podcast? I think we go through and we've kind of been, if anyone listens to like newer episodes, we've sort of changed up the way we do things a little bit now. But usually what we would do is like we gather together, me, my co-host Kalina, who you've talked to, and our editor, Kit and John, and we'll get together and we'll usually take stuff that we have posted about on the website, all that's interesting.com, where we write about all this stuff. And we kind of just pick the ones that really stand out to us as particularly interesting stories. So we recently did a four part series on various UFO incidents throughout history and some of the more recent ones. You mentioned we did a we did a whole series on the Titanic. So it really just kind of comes down to like what interests us and what we think will be interesting to listen to. In the case of Michael Rockefeller, I think the name is obviously a huge part of it, being one of the Rockefellers, one of like the classic American families. I think that that really stands out. And then just the the whole mysterious circumstances surrounding his disappearance and the fact that it took 60 years almost for anyone to really sort of reach a conclusion, a definitive conclusion on that. And even that is still kind of up in the air. But So you mentioned all that's interesting. This podcast, History Uncovered, is affiliated with that website. Do you want to say a bit more yeah. about that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So all that's interesting is a website where we cover history topics, science. We do daily news, which can range from anywhere from archaeological discoveries to new advances in science. Sometimes we just do weird news. I wrote a story the other day about a man who stuck his face into one of the world's tallest fountains and then got launched into the air. So, <laughs> Where did that happen? That was in Geneva. Yeah, at the um, Jet d'eau, which literally translates to water jet. So <laughs> what compelled him to stick his face in a fountain? No idea. No idea that I couldn't find any quotes from him or anything, but the, it spits out water at 110 gallons per second. So, wow. Wow. Coming out. Do you know how far like, heavy? Do you know how high? A cup, they said a couple of yards. Yeah. Okay. Enough to knock him onto his back. We've drifted far afield from Michael Rockefeller. So let's get back to that. Subject. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Glad we we went on that detour. I was intrigued by the fact that Michael's fascination with indigenous art to some degree ran in the family because his father, Nelson, opened the Museum of Primitive Art. And I think it was 1954. And yeah, he, yeah. He did, um, donated his own collection to this institution. So uh, in your research, did you come across information about other institutions like the Museum of Primitive Art? Were there others akin to it at this time in the United States? And then did you know anything about any particularly noteworthy objects on display at the Museum of Primitive Art? Nelson Rockefeller actually took a lot of pride in the fact that the Museum of Primitive Art was the first of its kind. He claimed in the world, I couldn't find anything to verify that, but certainly in the United States, it was the first museum dedicated almost solely to showing off African, um, Oceanic, and Native slash pre-Columbian art in America. Funnily enough, 
it was so it was first chartered in 1954. It didn't actually open until February of 1957. But the initial, the original name for it was supposed to be the Museum of Indigenous Art. But the wide American public wasn't really familiar with the term indigenous at the time. And so it was then changed to primitive art because that invoked something in the public consciousness that people recognized more readily, which I just think is a really interesting thing because we wouldn't obviously say primitive art nowadays. But yeah, it just kind of shows you how the taste has changed there. From what I gathered, it was kind of a no frills museum. It was just in a little townhouse in New York. It wasn't like a modern museum in the sense that there were little dioramas around everywhere that it was like super, super decorated. It was mostly a lot of just like white pillars with lights shining down on these objects. And they had things like a carved paddle from Easter Island, a wooden mask from Nigeria, a bunch of different pre-Columbian Maya and Aztec stone figures and things of that nature. Interesting. Do you know anything about people who went to visit this museum? Was it mostly like anthropologists or ethnographers or were members of the general public also interested to check out these artworks? Yeah, no, it was definitely open to the general public. Um, and I'm, I think the fair amount of people who went were just average people curious about these seemingly so distant cultures. Obviously, in the age before, like mass communication technology made it much easier to kind of come to an understanding about things. I was also intrigued by this documentary, Dead Birds. Yeah. Michael Rockefeller first traveled to what was, at the time, the Netherlands, New Guinea, to record sound for this documentary being made by Robert Gardner. Mm-hmm. And it explores the Dani people and their perceptions of death. And apparently it's quite artistic in the way it's made. There is a lot of beautiful cinematography and nonlinear storytelling. I believe the film was released in 1963, and it has since become sort of a canonical example of ethnographic filmmaking, but it's been also criticized for a number of reasons, too. So I got interested in this in this movie and tried to track down some of it. And I, I came across... Uh, about 10 minutes of original footage from it on YouTube. And you and I have sort of emailed back and forth about it before this conversation. Yeah. In the video, you basically see two clans fighting each other. And it is really striking footage. Yeah, definitely. I'm it striking is a really good word for it. You, you don't often see that kind of tribal warfare put on film and especially not in such a not glamorized or dramatized way. This tribe was like ritually involved in war. So even like young boys were out fighting using very primitive tools like simple spears and arrowheads that were barbed. There's this, I, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. There's that one really gruesome shot of somebody taking an arrow out of somebody else's butt and it's, yeah, the camera does not shy away from it. It's very, yeah, it's a tough watch. Yeah. Um, Although the guy who has been shot is totally stoic. I mean, hardly yeah. <laughs> to be in pain at all. I'll say this is probably the first and last time I will ever utter this sentence, but the YouTube comments were fascinating. To yeah, me. they were. And extremely instructive because I'll say personally, I just do not care about military history at all. I'm much more interested in cultural and social history. I'm but, with you, yeah. But... A lot of the people who posted about this video were military history buffs. And they were like, people do not understand how precious this footage is because it gives us a sense of what pre-modern warfare looked like. But I was fascinated by the fact that military buff 
military history buffs were fascinated by this video, even though I myself yeah. could not care less about about military history. Yeah, I think I saw one of the top comments was something like, this is some of the only footage of people fighting without guns that's actually been captured in documentarian style. I'm going to include a link in the show notes. So if listeners are interested, they can definitely go check it out. With regard to the mystery surrounding Michael Rockefeller's disappearance, you know, he went missing in what 1961 was it 61 yeah and his fate remained unknown to the family for years and years and years i was wondering if you could say a little bit more about why this was kept hidden from them for so long in the episode you mentioned that the dutch had their hands full trying to maintain control of their colonial territories but i just wondered if there was more to be said about that there's kind of a lot going on like you said with the dutch by 1962 they had basically already lost half of the islands to the new state of Indonesia. So they were certainly lacking resources when it came to looking for Michael Rockefeller. It kind of just simply wasn't their top priority. Even the Rockefellers themselves, Nelson and his wife, went over to New Guinea to look for him, and they also couldn't find anything, which I, I think is the more shocking part given the basically unlimited wealth that they had. Um, Nelson Rockefeller had like a $900 million fortune. But yeah, like despite that, they weren't able to find any information until much, much later. In 2014, a National Geographic reporter named Carl Hoffman released a book called Savage Harvest, A Tale of Cannibals, Colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's Tragic Quest for Primitive Art. That's sort of the first time that the full story started to come together. So Rockefeller's death was initially just listed as drowning. That was the explanation they could come up with. Mm. Um, the boat had overturned that he was on with his partner. He said he thought he could make it to shore and he dove under the water and was never seen again. And most people just, I think, assumed that he drowned. Uh, it was in the middle of a storm. It was tumultuous weather, rough waters. But then later on, as these investigations were going on, the Azimut people kind of started to grow a little bit wary. I mean, the, there are all these things coming in now, the helicopters, buggies, technology to being used to search for Michael Rockefeller that they had never really seen before because they were such an isolated community of people. Hoffman, while he was there, overheard tribes people talking about a white man that they had killed. Hoffman made the connection that perhaps they were talking about Michael Rockefeller. And if that were the case, it's very likely that his remains were never going to be found. If listeners liked this episode about Michael Rockefeller and they wanted to check out History Uncovered, where should they start? Are there episodes that you would recommend to them? One that I did recently that I was a big fan of was about the Amityville murders. So the events preceding the alleged haunting there. We also have covered like a bunch of other dis disappearances throughout history. Elisa Lamb, that woman who infamously is in video footage of her in an elevator looking out very paranoid. Some of the more recent ones I mentioned, we've kind of switched up the way we do things. It used to be more like the Michael Rockefeller episode that people would have just heard, uh, more narratively one person. And now it's shifted a bit. So now it's Kalina and I sort of doing more conversational stuff, sharing a story together and going through it and having more of a discussion. We did one recently on David Reimer, who was someone who was born male, had a botched circumcision, and then his parents met with 
a sexologist and made the decision to raise him as a girl. And then he later found out what had actually happened to him and then decided to live the rest of his life as a man. And that's a very like kind of all over the place tragic story. But I, I think it's an important one. As I said earlier, it, y'all cover a huge array of topics on the show. So listeners are bound to find something that interests them. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, that's all I have for you. Thanks again for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was fun.